grab a seat now. You've hugged enough moms. But you can do it again at the end of the service. When the service is over, we'll have open hugs one more time. All right? Great stuff. What we want to do now is we're going to listen to a special song, and then we're going to take our offering. So they're going to start the song in about two minutes in or so. Then we're going to Bible, grab it. We're going to dive right in because I got 40 minutes and I only have 30 minutes to give it to you. So we're going Romans, Romans chapter three. Go ahead and turn there. While you're doing that, I want to share with you, um, since it's Mother's Day, uh, basically a conversation that takes place in my home almost every day because potty talk has infiltrated the Wayman household. Um, and, and so it, whether it's Kathy having this conversation or myself, this is the conversation that takes place at our dining room table. Hey, Grayson, what do you want to have for dinner tonight? Poop. <laughs> Buddy, no potty talk. And besides, do you even realize what you're asking for? That's gross. Poop. If you say any more potty talk, you're going to go in time out, okay? No more potty talk. And at this point... Ethan is snickering over on the other side of the table, totally egging him on. And Grayson is a little bit of a performer. He's a lot of a performer. And so he's basically more concerned with making Ethan laugh than he is really about the consequence of possibly getting a timeout. So then we're like, okay, Grayson, what do you want for dinner? And he's kind of like, he'll, he'll look over at Ethan, he'll look over at us, little mental calculations. Poo-poo? <sighs> Go in timeout. And then he's like surprised, like, ah. Oh, and he gets down off of his chair and he goes over and slumps down against the wall. And at this point, Ethan will start laughing. It's like, dude, are you laughing that your little brother just got a timeout? And he tries to stifle it, but he's totally busted. Ethan, why are you celebrating the fact that he got in trouble? Besides, who taught him that word? You did. You're just as guilty as he is. Why don't you join him in timeout too? It's like, oh, the joys of being a parent, right? particularly of two very young boys who are just exploring. Um, But anyway, long story short, this kind of conversation is very similar to to the one that Paul is having with the Roman Christians here in the first few chapters of Romans chapter 3. The first few chapters of his gospel to the Romans. Gospel to the Romans, that's not true. Of his epistle, his letter to the Romans. He basically started out by going, hey, listen, All of you godless Gentiles, the ones who recognize that there is a God but won't refuse to worship him as God, you worship the creation rather than the creator, and he's given you over to it. So you are in this downward spiral into depravity. And around that time, there are people in the Roman church going, yeah, Paul, you tell him, all these moralizers, who are like, finally, someone's telling him. And he's like, oh, are you celebrating that I'm calling them out right now? You're just as guilty as they are on the very points that you're excited that they're getting called out on. You are just as guilty. And then he turns to the Jewish Christians, the ones who go, oh, you know, this is just a Gentile conversation. This has nothing to do with me because, you know, I am a chosen one of God. I have been, I'm a child of Abraham. God covenanted with us at Sinai, basically gave us the promised land. He gave us the, 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 the law in order to guide us. He gave us the covenant of circumcision and outward declaration of an internal reality that I am a son or a daughter of God. I'm good. I'm safe. And Paul goes, oh, no, 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 no. You are just as much under the law and you are just as much under sin as they are. Do not for a moment think that this conversation has nothing to do with you. Because we are all 
broken. We are all under control of sin. And so the very last verse of Romans chapter 2, before we jump into 3, or not the last verse, but in verse 28, he says this. Listen to the Jews. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Now, we might get kind of stuck on, on that word circumcision and go, what does this have to do with anything? The best analogies I can give you, one would be when I got married, on the day of my marriage, I put a wedding ring on my finger. This is an outward so- token, an outward sign of the fact that I no longer belong to myself, that I have given my heart to another, that I have covenanted with her. This would be similar to the, the act of circumcision, an outward declaration. But even more close to home for us Christ followers is that of baptism. Baptism is an outward declaration of an internal decision to follow Jesus Christ. We identify with his death, his burial, the going underwater, and his resurrection, being basically raised to new life. The old is gone, the new has come, we are new creations. That's what it is all about. But if we just get focused on, hey, I've prayed a prayer, hey, I've been um, baptized and stuff, Paul would basically say this to us. A person is not a Christian who is only one outwardly, nor is baptism merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Christian who is one inwardly. And baptism is baptism of the heart, by the Spirit, not by dunking in water. It's not about the outward expression. It's not about simply calling ourselves Christ followers. It's actually living as Christ followers. Does that make sense? But... We don't want to lose sight of the point that Paul is trying to make here. He is not suggesting we just have to try harder. In fact, this entire section that we've been in over the last three weeks is focused on one thing and one thing only. And that is showing each and every one of us that we are utterly unable to save ourselves. He's not trying to say, hey, here are all the things that you need to do, all the hoops you need to jump through in order to be a Christ follower. No. Gentile and Jew. Immoral and moralizer, you're all under sin. You are all worthy of God's wrath. And on the day of judgment, not a single one of you can stand up in front of God and say, I am righteous. I have lived a perfect, upright life. None of us. So stop resting on your good deeds. Stop resting on the law and the fact that you're a child of Abraham and the fact that you have been circumcised. Stop resting on the fact that you prayed a prayer and just, you know, were baptized. We are all under the wrath of God and we are all deserving of judgment. And he continues, just in case we did not understand him the first 42 times he said it, when we now jump into verse 9 of chapter 3, which is going to be the beginning of our text today, he says it one more time. He says, what shall we conclude? Again, he's speaking to the Jews. What shall we conclude? Do we have any advantages, Jews, on that day of judgment when we stand before God? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. When it comes to ultimately judgment, all of us, it is, it is an even footing. We are all in the same boat. And now he's going to do something. He's going to kind of make a list of statements that are actually taken from the Old Testament. This is a Jewish teaching style called stringing pearls. It basically is where a a rabbi will grab very short snippets of lots of different passages from the Old Testament and string them together to make a brand new statement 
that means something and it's kind of going in the same direction. However, if you understand the context of what each of those little quotes is saying, you'll have a much broader, grander understanding. And this is a lot more common as a teaching style than we realize. Even God got into this. Because when he spoke a blessing over his son Jesus, when he was being baptized, he said, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. He was stringing pearls. You are my son, Psalm 2, whom I love. Basically, take your son Moses, or take your son Abraham, whom you love, to Mount Moriah, where I'm going to have you sacrifice him. Genesis 22. With him I am well pleased. Isaiah the prophet in, Psalm, in Isaiah 42, talking about the Messiah that would come. With him I am well pleased. He's stringing pearls there, and it means something even richer when we understand that background. Got it? Clear? So now let's look at the string of pearls. This is the longest string of pearls we find in the Bible. Beginning in verse 10. As it is written, and this is most of these are taken from, there's like 13 of them in a, in a row. Most of them are from the Psalms, but there's a few others that are scattered around. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God, and all have turned away, and all together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see how they're all kind of making the same point over and over. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We read in the Proverbs that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. A reverential respect and understanding of who God is will ultimately cause us to both worship Him as worthy and order our lives around Him. But when we have no fear of God, when we say, whatever, then all of a sudden we become, we believe that we are the captains of our own ship and we start doing our own thing. So all of these pearls, and we're not going to have time this morning to go into each and every nuance, but all of them are pointing in the same direction. None of us can stand before God and say, I am righteous. Now, the Gentiles in the audience, the Gentile Christians, would be the first to say, totally get it. Yep, I am a sinner. I am saved by grace. Thank you, God, for that gift. It's the Jews that he's speaking to, however, who would have a harder time to hear this message. Because, again, they're going back to... You know, I, I, I'm a Jew. I am of Abraham's seed. I am part of the covenant. God has called us his chosen people. He's given us the law. He's given us the covenant of circumcision. I'm good. And Paul's saying, you're not good. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Okay, I'm talking to you Jews. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. On the day of judgment, when you stand before him, you can't say... I was a chosen person. I'm sorry, but it's not about that. Here's the righteous standard. And you have sinned. And you have fallen short of it. And so he's, he's targeting this particular section to those Jewish people and to the moralizers who think that they're okay. Because they need the truth as well. Oftentimes, I love the fact that Jesus taught this way. He would bring grace to the broken but he would lay the hammer of truth over the heads of people who were pretty prideful. Usually it was the Pharisees, the ones who knew the law, the ones who knew the scriptures best of all. They needed to hear it in their hearts, not just their heads. Now I'll say this. It is one thing for us to talk about our sin in the generic. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. It's yet another thing to recognize 
and itemize our actual sins. To come face to face with the ways that we have fallen short. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to take a brief moment to stop and actually do just that. To itemize our sins. So in your bulletins, there was one of these small cards. Go ahead and grab that out. Hopefully you haven't made it into a paper airplane or put your gum in it. If you do not have it, here you go. Sam, now you've already been singing. Would you help me out there? I'm putting, I'm putting you to work, okay? If you do not have one, will you do four stand up? If you don't have one, just raise your hand and one of these high schoolers will come and bring you one. They've got energy. We do not, so they will take care of it. Pete, come on up. We're just going to take three minutes to write out our sins. Now, a couple of ground rules here, okay? First off, no reading your neighbor's paper. You do not need to cheat and take their answers. You have plenty of answers yourself. So don't peek. If you, as you're writing, hey, you know what, also? I would encourage you to begin by just going, God, help me to recognize the ways that I have sinned against you because at the end of the day, um, we need to throw open the, the doors of those shadow areas, the closets that we kind of pack it all into, and just be honest and do a ruthless moral inventory in three minutes. And, and, and it's not very long. It's not gonna, certainly not going to be enough time, but I just want you to begin to recognize the gravity. And if you want to write in code so that only you and God understand what you're writing, that's totally fine. You can write in Elvish or whatever, you know. Just make sure you're writing it down right now. Go ahead. go on for quite a while longer. Some of us are very, very grateful that we're not going to. Uh, Go ahead and put those away for a moment. We'll come back to them in a little bit. So one of the temptations when we begin to talk about our junk and the ways that we've fallen short, one of the temptations is that we begin to try to rationalize and moralize. We begin to say, okay, Eric, you're focusing on my my mistakes, but I've made a whole lot of really good choices too. I've done a lot of really good things. And if you just focus on this, then yeah, I look like a bad person, but this isn't who I am. And in fact, I mean, if you were to put my good deeds and my bad deeds on a scale, the good deeds are way bigger than my bad deeds. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm generally a good person. And then when I start looking around me and all the other people in society, man, I'm way better than them. Even in this church, I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. You know, I know the Bible better than this person. I show up on time. Okay, I'm not 25 minutes late, you know, or whatever. I mean, you just start going through all your rationale of how we're better. We start comparing ourselves to other people as if they are the standard that we will ultimately be judged by. But I'm sorry to tell you that God does not grade on a curve. And our neighbor is not the standard by which we will be judged. He is. And he and his standard is perfection. 
And so as Scripture tells us, no one will be declared righteous by observance of the law. No one. But still we try, don't we? We try to turn rules and regulations that we pick up from all over the place into rungs of a ladder that we can somehow earn our God's approval. You know, we pick these things up from our, our, our church or from reading the Bible. Hey, got to read at least two chapters a day. Okay, I got that one. Um, I need to go to church at least twice a month. Okay, I got that one. Well, yeah, okay. It counts. I listen to it online. Okay. Um, I've got a tithe, you know, and tithing has six letters in it, so maybe that counts. I gave maybe 6%, so we'll, okay, count that one. I don't even know if it has six letters in it. Just go with me. Um, okay, let's see. Um, don't give in to my addictions. Oh, yeah, I'll try my best, okay? But, you know, there's got to be some grace here. Uh, don't give in to my anger. Yeah. Robin's saying, don't step on the not a step. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, my wife is saying, that's enough. That's high enough. And we turn, we turn rules and regulations that we pick up from our neighbors, from our parents. Are you guys fixated on the fact that I'm up here? That it's really wobbly? <laughs> my wife is going... You're not your own. You were bought at a price. You belong to me. Be careful. We turn rules and regulations into ladders that we hope can somehow help us climb into God's good graces, can somehow make us righteous. And when we do this, when we trust in these ladders, first off, this is not nearly high enough. I can't even reach the ceiling, let alone heaven. So maybe I just need a taller ladder. I'm not going to get another one, don't worry. Maybe I just need to try harder. Maybe I just need to beat my flesh a little bit more, right? And this is how we begin to get. We begin to focus on being righteous, on being holy as He is holy. And then we become ridiculously aware of our inability to be holy as He is holy. It makes me think... Of Peter sitting in a fishing boat and he sees Jesus walking across the water. Jesus, is that you? If it is, tell me to come and meet you. Come on, Peter. Come on out. And so Peter gets out of the boat. Some of you will breathe a sigh of release. I'll come down. So Peter gets out of the boat. That would not work well. Gets out of the boat. Don't drop the mic. That would be a no. We're good. How you doing? We're still here. And you wonder why we have sound issues around here, right? So Peter steps out of the boat and begins to step on the water. And he's got his eyes fixed on Jesus and he's walking on the water. And then he starts looking around him and he sees the wind and the waves. And he begins to think to himself, I can't do this. And he was absolutely right. And he begins to sink. Because the reality is, when he had his eyes fixed on Jesus, it was Jesus who was holding him up, not himself. And when he was focused on Jesus, Jesus held him above the water. But when he focused on himself, when he focused on his own strength, he got wet. But this, this is what we do. This is how we approach life. I will be the first to say, I'm a moralizer. I am, I am somebody who tries to be good enough to earn God's love. And I bet I'm not the only one here. 
You know what? Jesus actually railed on anybody who was like this. The Pharisees were perhaps the worst at it. Because the Pharisees were the kind of people who turned God's law into rungs on a ladder. In fact, they did something different. They, they took the 631 rules that they found in Scripture and they added to them an extra 1,500 rules and laws and traditions. They piled on top of those commandments that they found. And they were being zealous about it because righteousness was important to them. They used those extra laws, extra rules, as fences. In the same way that you parents who have pools in your backyard put a fence around it to keep little ones from wandering in, they used these extra rules and regulations as fences around God's laws so that the little ones of Israel, those of little faith, would not wander into them and break one of them. They truly believed that if they could, for instance, keep the Sabbath perfectly for even one day, then God would send his Messiah back. So we've got to protect the Sabbath. But how do we do that? Well, we know from the fourth uh, commandment that on the Sabbath it is holy because God rested on it, so we shall not work. Neither us, our family, our servants, or our, our oxen. Okay, cool, so no work. But what constitutes work? Now they had to start trying to figure it out. Well, we probably shouldn't walk too far. That might constitute work. Okay, well, maybe we need to be able to walk as le- at least as far as the synagogue and back. So maybe that's about, uh, what do you think? 2,000 paces? Okay, 2,000 paces. That's as far as you're allowed to walk. That's a Sabbath day's walk. Kid you not. That was the rule they came up with. Okay, we got that down, but what about like carrying a burden, something heavy? We probably shouldn't do that. That would constitute work. You're right. Okay, Well, maybe people should be allowed to carry at least enough milk for one swallow. Yeah, that's good. Okay. And maybe just enough ink to write two Hebrew letters. Yeah, that's right. I kid you not, those are rules that they came up with. They took the one commandment, honor the Sabbath, and they added to it 39 major categories of what constituted work, and under that, hundreds of subcategories of what constituted work. Hundreds and hundreds of new rules that they added on, new rungs on a ladder to protect people. And Jesus went, my gosh, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their teaching is just rules taught by men, but it has absolutely no ability to make you any more righteous than you already are. And it takes your eyes off of me and places it squarely onto your own abilities. And so Paul simply says to those who would like the Pharisees that this is how I attain my righteousness. He says in verse 20, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. Here's the point that he is making. The law was never intended to make us righteous. We try to turn it into a ladder, but that was never its intention. Instead, God gave us the law to make us aware of our inherent brokenness, to make us aware of the depravity that is within each of us. 
not to make us less depraved, but simply to draw our attention to it in the same way that when I go to the dentist's office, the first thing they make me do, other than sitting in the waiting room for like half an hour, the first thing they make me do is walk into a room, put a big sheet over my chest that's made out of lead or something like that, and then shoot x-rays into my mouth. The x-ray is not intended to heal my cavities. It is simply intended to identify them. Help me to see them so that, when the, so that I will recognize that I desperately need to see the dentist. And that when he says, listen, it might hurt a little bit. And it probably will cost a lot. But you need this. That I would be willing to take the pain and to, and to endure the cost. Because it's worth it. In the same way, the law was never intended to fix our sinfulness or give us a ladder to climb into heaven. It was simply intended to draw our attention to our inherent depravity so that we would run into Jesus' arms. I'm going to read verse 20 one more time because the whole book hinges on this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. End of story. And that could be the end of it. For Jews and Gentiles alike, for the immoral and the moralizer alike, that could be the end of it. But then, Paul continues. And this next passage that we're about to read is to some the most important passage in all of Scripture. In fact, Martin Luther wrote this about this next passage that we're about to read. This passage is the chief point and the very central place of both the epistle and the entire Bible. This is what it all boils down to. In a lot of ways, this next passage we're about to read is like the sound of an airplane's engine to a castaway that's been sitting on a raft for a couple of months. Salvation is at hand. It's like the wife who is holding her husband's cold hand in hers as she's listening in the doctor's office to the of the machine and all of a sudden signaling that there is still life. It's like the first ray of sunshine that breaks through the darkness of the night and brings hope of a new day. It is the first ray of hope in the midst of our despair. This is what Paul says. But now Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came from Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance and his patience he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of the law? No. The law that requires work? Absolutely not. Because the law that requires but because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God just the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through this same faith. We'll pause there for a moment. I just want to go back through this. 
because there's a lot there. This is like chewing on steak. I get it, which is why we're taking such a slow pathway through this letter. Here's his point. This was our best attempt. We thought the law was our our ladder to heaven, but it wasn't. It was nothing more than an x-ray that shows the cavity and the moral decay that is within us. So it drives us in the arms of our Savior. And thankfully there is a Savior. Because now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been made known to which the laws and the prophet testify. Meaning that now God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Through the cross, this is how we were made holy. And by the way... The law and the prophets testify about this. All through the Old Testament, God has been pointing to the fact that he will do this. This is not a plan B. This was not, well, I really wanted them to be able to do it on their own, but I guess they can't. So, Jesus, you want to? Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Thanks for doing me a solid. That, not at all. This was simply intended to make us understand that this is what we need. We need the cross. We need a Savior. We need Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Does that make sense? Okay. And he goes on. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Not just to the Jews. Not just for the Gentiles. For anyone and everyone. Not because we've earned it. Not because we are better. Not because we climb higher, climb faster, do better, and appear cleaner than our neighbors. But solely because of God's gift of grace. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. So that nobody, nobody can boast. Look what I've done. Look how high I've climbed. Look how I've earned it. We are saved by grace alone. That's it. God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to take our punishment upon him. His blood covers our sins through the shedding of his blood in order to be received by faith. We cannot do this by our own strength. We cannot earn it. While we were still sinners, while we were still dead set in our rebellious nature, God sent Jesus Christ to die for us. And by the way, He did this to uphold his holy, righteous law. We might say, well, God, you're God. You set the standard, right? So why can't you just turn your back? Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't you have just said, I forgive you? I mean, you're God. You can do anything, right? But let's not forget that our God is a holy, righteous God. We are not. And our God also loves us and desires relationship with us. That's clear all throughout Scripture. But there's a problem. If God is holy and righteous, He is holy, other, and perfect, and we are morally depraved, and we are broken and corrupted by sin, then we cannot, in our sin, reside in the same place as God in intimate communion like He desires without you know, destruction. Now, I need to be clear. It's not that our corruption would destroy God or sully Him in any way, shape, or form. But just like light and darkness can't exist in the same place, light would utterly destroy darkness. Being in God's presence would utterly destroy us. And since He desires relationship with us, He can't simply turn a blind eye to our immorality. He can't turn a blind eye to the ways that we have flaunted the law. 
Instead, he had to uphold the law. He had to deal with our sin in such a way that we could be declared righteous even though we've screwed up and continue to screw up. Does that make sense? So, Paul is simply saying in this section, and I'm going to read the very last verse because he basically sums it up. Verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Has God pretty much turned a blind eye to the law? Has he thrown it out and said the law no longer matters? No, not at all. Just the opposite. This is still the righteous standard. He simply said, by the cross, I am making sinners into saints. I am making prodigals, redeemed sons and daughters, who can come home. They don't have to be separated because of their sin. I have taken their sin and nailed it to the cross. It no longer is over their head. They don't have to climb. Because Jesus Christ has already bridged the chasm that separates us. It is finished. The very last thing that Jesus said on the cross, to tell us die. It is finished. What's finished? Our sin. Its grip upon us. The need to somehow earn our righteousness. The need to somehow prove our worthiness. It's finished. So stop striving. Stop trying. Stop trying to prove you're good enough and simply rest in the fact that you are my son that you are my daughter, that I love you more than you could ever possibly fathom, and there is nothing you need to do to prove that. It is a gift. You don't have to earn it. In fact, if you try to earn it, you make it not a gift anymore. So, embrace this gift. Say thank you and receive it with gratitude. Well, how do I do that? I'm going to invite Pete and the band to come forward. How do I do that? How do I take hold of this gift so that I can stop trying to do this? Or when I find myself piled in a heap at the bottom of the ladder that I thought could hold me up and the rungs have given out underneath me or I have simply been unable to hold on to the list of demands that I've placed upon myself thinking that this is how I earn my identity. And I get down here and I just go, I give up. I can't do it anymore. I'm just going to sit here in the pigsty from which I find myself. God, how do I get out of here? He invites us to simply come just as we are. You don't have to clean yourself up in order to come into his presence. You can come just as you are in faith that Jesus Christ has already done everything that needs to be done. So come just as you are. See, basically just cry out, Jesus, I need you. And I'm just saying, there's nothing magical about what I'm about to say. It's different every time I say it. No magic incantation, but we simply say something, Jesus, I need you. I recognize that I have fallen short of your righteous standard. I'm not perfect, and you are, but I desire relationship with you. So I accept this gift that you bought for me on the cross through your blood. I accept that you have made me a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come, and that's amazing, and I don't feel like it's true, but I want it to be true of me, God. So would you come into my life? Would you begin to clean house? I I accept you not only as my Savior, but as my Lord. Would you be the captain of my life? Would you guide and direct my choices? I won't follow perfectly, but I'm going to do my very best. Would you give me the strength, Holy Spirit, to follow you? Jesus, in your name. Now, earlier, I had you guys write down the sins.
some of the sins that have been separating you from God, the things that you try to overcome by these ladder rungs. And what we're going to do this morning during our worship time is we're simply going to bring these in, in, in a declaration of what Jesus Christ has already done. There's a couple of crosses here. There's some hammers in them. There's some really big nails. Please don't drive them all the way down because I'm going to have to remove them at some point. Grab a hammer. Grab a nail. Take your sins. If you want to fold it in half, that's perfectly all right. Bring it to the cross. It is finished. Done. Nail your sins to the cross because Jesus Christ said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All you who have been carrying a burden of trying to make up for your imperfections. Bring me your sins, lay them down, and I, I will give you rest. So when you're ready, I invite you to come forward, grab a hammer, and lay them down because it's finished. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you have made a way for sinners to become and be declared saints. Glorify yourself in us. And would you give us the freedom that can only be found in your son. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.